Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn Dwyer and this is The Norman Invasion Part 9, Henry II in Ireland. The story of the Norman Invasion so far in this series has been one of bloodshed, siege and battles. In this episode, however, things shift dramatically with the arrival of the King of England, Henry II. He lands with a huge army, the most advanced Ireland had ever seen. The reaction of the Gaelic kings is not what we might expect, as Henry was welcomed by most. However, as we shall see, this initial greeting only tells part of the story. As land appeared on the horizon on October the 17th, 1171, Strongbow can only have been reminded of the first time he had completed a journey across the Irish Sea. That had been in late August 1170 when he had made his first voyage to Ireland. However, on that occasion, what lay ahead of him was deeply uncertain. Back then, he hadn't found much in the way of a welcoming committee. Indeed, he had to fight his way into the town of Waterford within days of landing. This time, in late 1171, things would be very different. Few would try and resist the army that was now making its way across the Irish Sea to Ireland. Strongbow was aboard one of the largest fleets ever to land in Ireland. As the 400 or so ships plied the same course he had in 1170, passing around Hookhead before making their way up the river shore, this vast flotilla would have been a sight to behold for those on the shore. The fleet made landfall on the western side of the shore estuary at a place called Crook, in County Waterford and there the army disembarked. Amid this somewhat chaotic process it was clear there were few in Ireland that could resist this army in the way some had tried to stand up to Strongbow when he had first landed. Aside from the four or five thousand people aboard the ship's cargoes included weapons, hundreds of war horses and even prefabricated siege towers alongside more mundane day-to-day supplies, which included a ton of wax for candles. 
When the unloading was complete, what was the greatest and most technologically advanced army Ireland had ever seen was safely ashore. It was around four times the size of the force Strongbow had brought with him in 1170. However, that was a different time. When Strongbow had landed, he had been the leading figure, having defied his king to launch an invasion of Ireland. Now, in October 1171, the army wasn't under his command, but instead that same king he had defied, Henry II. Indeed, it was only a few weeks previously that Strongbow had travelled to Wales to make peace with his king, who was preparing to come to Ireland anyway. Now Henry's arrival in Ireland would see the king focus on laying claim to the entire island, which transformed the nature of the Norman presence on the island, which had been focused on the Kingdom of Leinster in the southeast. Henry, it should be said, had also come to Ireland at this specific time as he needed to escape a political storm in England. The previous December, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas a Becket, had been murdered and many were pointing the finger at the King. With Henry in Ireland, it must have been blatantly obvious to all that the nature of the Norman invasion of Ireland was about to change. If Henry's visit went well, the invasion would have the official backing it had lacked so far, not to mention the military might Henry brought with him. Almost immediately, Henry made his presence felt when he held court at the town of Waterford and declared himself Lord of Ireland. In Henry's mind, this did not just apply to his Norman subjects, but to all Gaelic kings and chieftains as well. This dramatically altered the supposed reasons why the Normans were in Ireland. Strongbow, theoretically at least, had come to restore Dermot MacMurrah, the King of Leinster, to power. While he had been successful in this regard, and had even managed to succeed Dermot when he died, Henry and his descendants would find claiming the entire island and launching a full-scale invasion was something far easier said than done, even if it appeared deceptively easy at the beginning. However, for Henry, initially the person whose loyalty he was most concerned about was actually Strongbow. After all, it had only been a few months earlier that Strongbow had defied him and Henry had to go as far as banning all travel to Ireland. While the two had made their peace, Henry wanted the world, and more accurately everyone in Ireland, to know that Strongbow had accepted his king's authority. So, to this end, Strongbow, who had conquered Waterford in a violent siege in 1170, handed the town over to Henry as a mark of respect, homage and fealty to his king. Most of Henry's business in Ireland was not as clean-cut as this, however. While he held court in Waterford in the following days, he got his first taste of the quagmire of deadly rivalries that was Gaelic politics in the 12th century. While no doubt these seemed obscure to Henry, he would need to get a handle on these feuds which dominated Ireland if he was to have any hope of laying claim to his title of Lord of the Island. His initial foray into what was a Byzantine world came in the form of Dermot McCarthy, the King of Desmond, who arrived at Waterford to formally submit to him within days of his arrival. McCarthy even went as far as handing over hostages to Henry. 
while this might sound strange that he would submit to an invading king even before he was asked to, there was some method in his seeming madness. Dermot McCarthy was not doing this out of any great love or loyalty to Henry II. While his act was partially motivated by fear, his submission was as much rooted in a centuries-old feud as anything else. Dermot, as a McCarthy, was descended from the ancient Ogonacht kings of Munster. They had lost much of their power in the 10th century to Brian Baru and his descendants, the O'Briens. This had produced a lethal feud between the two families in the following decades. The arrival of the Normans had done nothing to ease the tensions. Indeed, Dermot McCarthy had seen his rival, Donal O'Brien, gain an ally as Strongbow married his sister-in-law. So when Henry arrived, Dermot saw his submission as a mechanism to rein in his rival O'Brien and his powerful Norman allies by gaining such a powerful patron as Henry. This was just one of the dozens of rivalries Henry would need to be cognizant of while he spent time in Ireland. While this introduction into the world of Gaelic politics was no doubt torturously difficult to a man who was an outsider, he was soon faced with an equally difficult situation when a figure from his distant past was hauled before him as a prisoner. While Strongbow had defied Henry II in 1170 by coming to Ireland, so too had many other Normans, most notably Robert Fitzstephen. In previous instalments of this series, we saw how Fitzstephen had been captured in Wexford while the siege of Dublin had trapped Strongbow and subsequent attempts to rescue him had failed. His captors were the townspeople of Wexford. While they had defied Strongbow's demands to return Robert Fitzstephen, Henry II's arrival with his huge army changed the situation. There was no question that Henry's massive force could easily take Wexford, so the townspeople completely changed tactics. They approached the royal court at Waterford, bringing Fitzstephen before the king in chains. The Wexford men submitted to Henry and then, pitching themselves as loyal subjects, offered Fitzstephen as a prisoner, given he had, after all, defied Henry in coming to Ireland. There was obviously some truth in the townspeople's argument. And the king also no doubt wanted to avoid any kind of acrimonious relationship with the population of the important port town. However, punishing Robert Fitzstephen was not an easy option, given the history between the king and the prisoner. When Henry looked at the dishevelled man before him in chains, he probably scarcely recognised the figure he had once known 14 years earlier. But in 1157, when the king had been fighting in North Wales, Robert Fitzstephen had actually saved his life. The subsequent years had been hard on the prisoner. Since 1166, he had been in prison in Wales for three years and then the remaining time he had spent fighting or in captivity in Ireland. Nevertheless, Henry was in a bind. He would not punish the man who had saved his life, but he also had to balance this with the desire for punishment among the people of Wexford. So Henry had Fitzstephens taken to Reginald's Tower, a fortification which still stands in Waterford today, and there he was chained up to another prisoner. This, however, historians have speculated, was more to assuage the Wexford men, and indeed 
probably protect Fitzstevens. As within a few weeks, when the situation had calmed down, he was released, and his story in Ireland was by no means over. Having conducted this business at Waterford, Henry was getting a flavour for what his mission in Ireland would be like. It would need more brains than brawn. There were few who would challenge him militarily, but balancing rivals and a mess left in the aftermath of the initial Norman conquests would take all his skills in diplomacy. Leaving Waterford, he moved north to the nearby Monastery of Lismore, where he met the papal legate to Ireland and set in train preparations for a major council of the Irish Church to be held a few months later. This is something I will return to later in the show. From here, he moved on to Cashel, the ancient seat of the Ogonacht kings of Munster, and by the 12th century, a major monastery. It was at Cashel Henry wanted the church council to take place, but on his arrival, he had to deal with more temporal matters, because waiting for him there was Donal O'Brien, the implacable enemy of Dermot McCarthy, who Henry had met at Waterford. He also took Donal's submission, and at this point, starts to play the part of a high king of old who took submission from all kings and with it guaranteed their safety. However, in return, Henry had his price and in terms of the Munster kings, O'Brien and McCarthy, he took the towns of Cork and Limerick, which were now ruled by garrisons he appointed himself. From Cashel, Henry and his army moved north across modern Tipperary, through Kilkenny and Kildare towards Dublin. His army and baggage train of 5,000 or so people would have moved at a remarkably slow pace. We know that in late 1171 the weather was incredibly wet so the army plodding through soggy terrain must have left a quagmire of mud in their wake. Along the route all Gaelic kings and chieftains of powerful families submitted to him. The most important of these was Gilapatric, the king of Ossery who had been a thorn in the side of the Normans since their arrival in Ireland. He was followed by the O'Toole and Phelan families in Kildare. However, it wasn't until Henry arrived at Dublin that what might be deemed the heavy hitters of Gaelic Ireland arrived to meet him. At Dublin, Tiernan O'Rourke, the one-eyed king of Breffney, who had been a key figure at the Siege of Dublin earlier in the year, arrived, as did the Macalevy and O'Carroll kings from eastern Ulster. Now, over the centuries, nationalist historians have struggled to understand and explain why all these kings submitted to Henry and did not at least try and evade the king if they were not willing to fight him. Any attempt to explain these events through a nationalist paradigm is completely anachronistic, though. These medieval Irish kings and chieftains were not nationalists in any way, shape or form. They acted in the interests of their family and kingdom not in the interests of what we would regard today as the Irish people in the broadest sense of the word. They had little concern for what happened in other parts of Ireland outside their own kingdoms, save if they were at war with them. The Gaelic kings had for centuries been fighting each other, so the arrival of Henry II into this environment, acting as he did, seemed as much as an opportunity to many as they viewed him as a useful ally in their ongoing squabbles. However, while it seemed to Henry in 1171 that he was actually Lord of Ireland with all these kings submitting to him, this was fanciful. It should be remembered that the Gaelic kings who submitted to Henry would have seen this as a very temporary measure, certainly not something that would last decades. They knew Henry would leave Ireland soon enough 
and another powerful king, perhaps Rory O'Connor or another king from across Ireland, would step into his place. It was the way politics in Ireland had worked for centuries. They certainly had no idea of the further conquests of huge tracts of Ireland that the Normans were envisaging once they had secured their position in Ireland. All that said, there were two major absences from the list of kings who submitted to Henry. First and foremost, it seems certain that Rory O'Connor, the King of Connacht, did not come to Dublin and meet Henry. While Rory's claim to high kingship had been severely damaged during his encounters with Strongbow, if he knelt before someone like Henry II, it would be blown completely out of the water. The other major absence was the great power of Western Ulster, the O'Neill family. Until 1166, they had been the most powerful family in Ireland, on and off for centuries. But in the 1170s, they were temporarily embroiled in an internal conflict. Isolated behind mountains and rivers in Ulster, they had had very little engagement with the Normans since their arrival, so they had little interest or need, as they sought, to kneel before this strange king. However, the same could not be said for most kings in Ireland, as we have seen. And over Christmas 1171, Henry II even went as far as entertaining them at his Christmas feast at Dublin. But before I look at this, I want to take a quick break. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Now, let's get back to the show. The arrival of Henry, his army and the camp followers at Dublin in late 1171 may have doubled the population of the town or perhaps even trebled it. Scarcely few would have found somewhere within the walls of the town to stay, so presumably an army camp was erected in the surrounding territory. Indeed, within Dublin's walls, there was not even somewhere deemed suitable for Henry and his court. Outside the walls of medieval Dublin, roughly where Trinity College stands today, Henry had his carpenters erect a palatial structure described by the chronicler Roger of Hoveden as being built of woven willow saplings in accordance with Irish techniques. In this great structure, Henry hosted the kings of Gaelic Ireland for feasting around Christmas 1171, and no doubt did much to ease any fears they may have had about his intentions in Ireland. While this may have helped Henry's relations with the Irish kings, it did little for the troops in his own army or the poor of Ireland. Late 1171 was the worst time his army could have arrived in Ireland. The winter was the worst in years. 
Henry's crossing had been delayed for over two weeks by poor weather and this had continued to dog his campaign in Ireland. Food could not be brought from England or the continent due to rough seas while Ireland itself was engulfed by famine. In these harsh conditions, the chronicler Ralph de Deceto tells us that dysentery swept through his army camp while the Welsh chronicle of the princes recalled there was dreadful mortality among the army. Watching Henry II feast the Irish kings in these conditions must have been galling for many of his troops. In the new year of 1172, Henry was able to return to one of the most important issues he had to deal with, the church. As we saw earlier, after he left Waterford, he had laid the groundwork for a council of the Irish church and this now met a cashel in early 1172. The church had already discussed the Norman presence in Ireland and tacitly supported the invasion, so there was little doubt what the outcome of the gathering would be. Along with numerous articles relating to church reform, the clerics also accepted Henry as King and Lord of Ireland. This was not very surprising in the 12th century, as the church was heavily influenced by religious ideas from England and the continent. Henry would support efforts to reform the Irish church along these lines, so they made lightly allies. The edicts of the church council at Cashel were sent to Rome for Pope Alexander to confirm, and by the end of the year, the papacy would lend its significant backing to Henry's claim over Ireland. Having seen off the threat from the Gaelic kings and secured backing from the church, Henry now had one last task to take care of before he could leave Ireland. This was how to deal with his Norman subjects. Henry's decision to come to Ireland had been largely prompted by the actions of the Norman nobles and in particular Strongbow. He had initially been concerned about their long-term goals in Ireland and the possibility that they would establish an independent and rival kingdom. Now if any ideas along these lines had ever existed, they had been quashed by Henry's display of power. Only a fool would have tried to take him on, and Strongbow was certainly no fool. However, it seems Henry did not fully trust his vassal. In early 1172, he knew he would leave Ireland shortly, and in nearly all certainty would never return again he needed to be sure that the Norman presence in Ireland was stable into the future. And the current situation did not entirely please him. The towns in Ireland were to a large degree in completely trustworthy hands. He had taken the port of Wexford from Fitzstephens. His future rule there was impossible given the animosity between him and the townspeople. In his place, Henry left a loyal garrison. He also took Waterford from Strongbow, as had been agreed, and similarly left a garrison he could trust in control. At Dublin, he opted to hand the town to the men of Bristol, who he knew would be able to bolster trade with the port and potentially restock its population, which had been ravaged by war and siege in recent years. However, this left a massive tract of land, the Lordship of Leinster, which in the medieval period comprised of all land south of the Liffey and east of the Barrow, in the hands of Strongbow. Henry found this situation, where Strongbow was far and away the most powerful individual in Ireland, too dangerous, and before he left Ireland in 1172, he granted Meath, a vast territory north of the Liffey, which had been the homeland to the great Southern O'Neill family, to the Norman lord, Walter de Lacy. For Henry, 
This was the perfect counterbalance to Strongbow and Leinster and ensured he would not get out of control. However, for the Gaelic Irish, this was a serious warning shot. Literally, with a stroke of a quill, Henry had brought down what would be death and destruction on Meath, with no regard for the ruling Umwell-Shochnell dynasty. Walter de Lacey could take their land from them now, by fire and sword. While Henry's presence on the island had been peaceful, this act, above all others, ensured prolonged war once he left. As winter gave way to spring in 1172, the storms finally calmed and trade and communication between Ireland and Britain resumed. However, the first ships crossing the Irish Sea brought worrying news to Henry. The papal legates who had arrived in Normandy to investigate the murder of St Thomas of Becket were threatening to excommunicate the entire of Henry's kingdom if he didn't come in person to meet them. If this wasn't enough to make him return, he soon heard the news that his own son, also called Henry, was plotting against him. Henry II clearly needed to leave Ireland and return to deal with what was a mounting crisis. On April 16th, 1172, his main fleet left Waterford while the king joined them the following day, departing from Wexford. Henry would never return to Ireland, but his actions had a lasting impact. His granting of Meath to Walter de Lacey not only ensured the violence of conquest of the previous years would resume, but also set up the Normans in Ireland from the get-go to be at each other's throats. Strongbow and de Lacey were naturally now rivals, something that would hamper the colony for centuries. Join me next time when we look at the initial stages of Walter de Lacey's invasion of Meath and how many of the Gaelic kings who had submitted to Henry soon found themselves at odds with the Normans in Ireland once the king himself had departed. Until next time, Slán. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.